Welcome to Course Stories, produced by the Instructional Design and New Media Team of EdPlus at Arizona State University. In this podcast, we tell an array of course design stories alongside other ASU Online designers and faculty. On today's course story, majority of students I'm serving in this course are people who will become or are already healthcare professionals. And we know that healthcare professionals live under some of the most stressful conditions. And many of our students not only are going to school full time, but they have jobs and they have families. So that human part as an instructor to recognize who our students are and what we're asking them to do to understand the pressure that they have to succeed. And it calls on us as professors and instructors to recognize that and to deliver the course in a way that's doable for our students. Hi. I'm Mary Loader, an instructional designer from ASU Online. I'm Ricardo Leone. I'm a media specialist at the same place. Yeah, we work together. Let's get on with the show. Okay. Hey, Mary. Hey, Ricardo. How's it going? Things are good. Things are busy. Uh-huh. We just started another Quality Matters, applying the Quality Matters rubric workshop this last week. We've got a ton of webinars coming up. Uh-huh. Not to plug them again, but I mean to plug them again. <laughs> <laughs> go for it. Well, go to Eventbrite, folks. You'll see them. Mm-hmm. Anyhow. I'm excited for today's episode. Are you now? Who are we going to hear? We not only have Tamara Mitchell, one of my favorites, but we also have Christina Scribner. She's amazing. They're mentioning not only human design, universal learning for design principles, but group work. This is the bane of all existence in online courses for students and faculty. She nails it. She gives you reasons why it works. And also the interactive textbook. So original that she turned audio files that she recorded from her own subject matter expertise from her own clinical practice and turned it into a resource for her students in a multimodal way. Amazing. Thank you, Tamara, for that suggestion. It's phenomenal. And then she's also going to be covering surveying for improvement, a huge piece to developing online courses in a meaningful way. So Yeah, for this course, uh, HCS 355, Eating for Lifelong Health. Yes. Am I going to learn anything about eating for lifelong health in this? I think Christina shares some snippets, but honestly, Mm -hmm. uh, it sounds like she had to build her own book with Tamara because there wasn't a book out there that she could specifically recommend. As long as it's focused on eating, I'm hungry. (laughs) We just ate, actually. I'm still hungry. (laughs) Thank you for lunch. You're welcome. (laughs) Okay, so you ready to do this? Yeah, let's do this. Let's do this. Also, I'm going to pay you back for it. I wasn't one of the things that you're giving me last time. Yeah, right. Get your Zoom. No, I'm what? just kidding. You paid me last time. You tried to give me interest. Which I is- try to pay you all the time, and sometimes I forget. Hi there. I'm Christina Scribner. I'm in my second stint here at ASU. I actually started teaching for ASU shortly after completing graduate school from 1984 to 1990, and then came back in 2010 to develop two online courses Unfortunately, I was invited to stay. My profession is currently split between academics and clinical practice. Although I've taught and developed many courses here at ASU, today we're going to be talking about my course, Eating for Lifelong Health, which is a course I consider to be my baby. And I'm Tamara Mitchell. I have had the privilege of working with Christina. In fact, I've been uh, working with ASU Online over two years now, and I've been with higher education 10 years, and I'm so grateful for the incredible and talented folks I get to work with. I've also had some experience teaching for about seven and a half years in higher education 
education. And um, I see Christina and what a focus she has on her students. And that's one of the things that stands out in this course. There's a lot of human-centered design elements, and there's a lot of intentional use of interactivity to support the whole learning experience of a student. So I'm excited to talk about this today. And then also, I get to be an instructional designer in this role. I've been able to work with Christina on this course. And I just, (laughs) Christina, I just keep following you around trying to figure out more ways we can work together. So (laughs) I'm glad we get to, this is one more way we get to work together. But I'm happy to be here. Well, even though officially we've worked together on this course, Tammy, you've impacted my course, other courses that I've I've developed. (laughs) So it's not just this one. You do. You find those things that start to work with one course and you start to apply those to the other courses. I think that's the brilliance of, you know, instructional design. It's applicable to many areas. So, uh, Christina, well, we're looking forward to talking a little bit about your HSC 355 course, and that's Eating for Lifelong Health. Is that correct? Yeah, we're going to talk about Eating for Lifelong Health. Tell us a little bit about it. So this is a course that was designed to take students who are not necessarily going through a clinical nutrition tract, but have an interest and a need to know relevant nutritional issues throughout the lifespan. And so... Students who have, are getting a degree in nutrition could take this course, but there's also an alternate course that they could take. This course typically has a variety of students from different academic programs. For example, biomedical informatics, education studies, family and human development, global health, most importantly, eating healthy lifestyles, coaching, the nutrition department. Sometimes we've got liberal studies, nursing, food and nutrition, entrepreneurship, a whole variety of students take this course, but the thing they learn from this course is how to incorporate a coaching perspective to improve other people's lives, hopefully their own as well. And so those people who you might see as healthcare providers in occupational therapy or physical therapy, athletic training, becoming a physician's assistant or registered dietitian or nurse, hopefully will be utilizing the types of skills and knowledge that they learn in a course like this. So how do you think the fact that you are a practitioner of this as well as an instructor, how do you think that that influences how you teach and how your course is set up? Well, that's right. My clinical expertise is in eating disorders, and that expertise serves me really well with our students because college students represent a disproportionately high prevalence of disordered eating and eating disorders. So I feel like I was building on my past experience, responding to the needs of my students from the 80s when I was writing this course. Um, In the old days, students used to follow me across campus to my office, and they would come into my office and ask me questions about how to help their friend. At that time, I was probably pretty naive, and it took me a bit to catch on that they were really asking questions about how to help themselves. Right. So you saw them as an entire, uh, a whole person as opposed to a student who needed to get a certain grade out of your class then. Yeah, that's right. And because this course is eating for lifelong health, we're looking at the ways that people are being nourished and fed and how we learn to eat from the very beginning. And I think it's important to recognize that we don't just eat, we learn to eat and we learn to eat based on very complex factors. Right. 
And I, and I think that those factors, you know, you've addressed those in the course in a lot of different ways. I think that brings us to how you approach your students in terms of uh, reaching out and trying to meet their needs using universal design for learning. There was that interactive textbook, which started out as an audio file and became much more than that. Can you tell us a little bit more about how your interactive textbook and your study guides came about? Well, sure. I was working on updates for the course and some pretty significant new guidelines were coming out. So I started looking for a new textbook and I have my own ideas about how often material needs to be updated. But certainly when your textbook isn't going to be updated and the world is moving away from textbooks, I was faced with this dilemma about what am I going to do? There is no textbook for this group of students in particular about this subject. And so I started outlining the information that I wanted that I thought students needed to know, and much of that was gleaned from my personal practice. I wrote down the things that come to me clinically, the things that parents bring their kids in to see me about, and the things that my patients bring up in my clinical practice, included all of those within the outline so that I was sure that the most prominent issues in a clinical practice were going to be addressed in this course. And I think, Tamara, the thing that working with you did for me, the, the biggest thing is bringing my ideas into what I would consider a living mm -hmm. text. And as I wrote things out, we were able to keep updating. And I recognized that the process we were using was going to be something that allowed me to keep updating the course as more guidelines and the changing information was evolving. Right. So that, yeah, your, your key knowledge of course design, the mechanics about how to meet the needs of various student learners was so important in terms of putting this, bringing this idea to life. I'm so <laughs> grateful. Christina, you've mentioned a little bit about a healthy relationship with food. Can you tell me what that means? Oh, goodness. I don't think that there's any singular definition of what we mean by a healthy relationship with food or with activity. But I ask my students to consider three questions. And one is, what is food or activity doing for you or someone else? And by that, I mean, does it give you pleasure? Do you use it for nurturing, comfort, entertainment? Or do you make your food choices for health? Another question would be, what is food or activity doing to you or someone else? So again, we can look at, does it bring you pleasure or does it lead to guilt? Is it distracting for you or does it lead to obsession for you? And then lastly, number three, how do you use food or physical activity? And by this, I mean, do we use food as our means of expressing love? Do we use food as our way of telling somebody that we care about them? Do we use our food choices to bolster our self-esteem? Or do we choose to engage in certain activities to demonstrate status or virtue? So this complex relationship with food is something I'm encouraging students to learn about all the way through the life cycle. And as we discover and discuss the role of food from conception to death, it changes. Food, the role food has in our lives and what we need food for is constantly changing all the way through the life cycle. As well, you know, the barriers that we have in terms of meeting those needs are constantly changing. You just begin to think about, you know, all the complex social barriers we might have in terms of what we choose to eat or what activities we choose to engage in. 
And that's interesting because we've had conversations about how it's important to keep in mind that the students that you're teaching today might look very different from the students you're going to teach tomorrow. And so it's important to kind of stay in tune with those needs as you revise your course and as you think about what you're trying to teach your students. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the word impact, the idea of of impacting students and that our students will impact others. When you think of a, about a course or lessons or information like this that deals with our relationship with food and activity, our own relationship with food and how we think about it as a professional will certainly impact our family members. It will impact all of those clients or patients that we work with. And so students have tremendous power in terms of how they will go out and impact others. You know, it's kind of impressive to see that you're so self-aware of the far-reaching impact of what you're teaching. <laughs> I think not, not everyone has that. When they sit down to grade a paper, they're thinking, I'm going to affect people and their family, <laughs> you know. so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm thinking that our students will have affect people in their family. And, and as you're grading a paper, you recognize that this isn't just a student, this is a person mm-hmm. who's being very vulnerable with you in terms of sharing their own background and things that how they look at something and what, what they're sensitive to and how you respond to that in terms of supporting those students is extremely important. Well said. I really like what you were saying about meeting the needs of various learners. I think that that's one of the things that we talked about, that you really wanted to make sure that each of your learners accommodated different needs and abilities of your students. And so that's really where universal design for learning came in. And, you know, we're really focusing on different ways that we can help students engage in the course, different ways we can represent the information in the course in different ways they can take action or expression within the material. And so that interactive textbook didn't just come because it was a fancy tool. We brought it about because there was a need there and there was kind of this guiding principle that you have in terms of uh, being very student focused and it just kind of fit nicely. What kind of response have you gotten from your students on that? Well, I'm really pleased. I feel like I'm always scared to look at my course evaluations and see the responses that students, the things that they say, but it's an extremely positive. And I think some of what surprises me most about the positive response is that students are loving the group work. And group work isn't something that most students are enthused about. I feel like it's difficult for them to figure out their schedules and how they're going to work with various people. But what I'm hearing students say is that interacting with other students really enhanced their experience in this course and they were able to connect with one another and learn from one another the things that they would not have otherwise been aware of. Right. And I like that you're talking about making student interactions meaningful. I, I think that's one reason when we were looking at your course reviews that students don't hate group work. <laughs> There were actually a couple of reviews that said uh, they were pleasantly surprised by the group work. Uh, They thought it was going to be bad. One student said, you've restored my faith in group work. So, (laughs) so, uh, and, and you talked about being personal. Can you tell us a little bit about how you used case studies to help kind of put learners on the same side of the table so that they're actually cooperating and, and working together in a group? Yeah, I did come up with case studies for various stages of the life cycle. And I think the premise of the learning community working in a group is that everybody in the group shares something. 
thing. And I think the thing that students share is the desire to pass this course <laughs> and the need to cooperate with one another in this sense. But they also recognize through this thing we, we call the case study charter. And charter is a plan in terms of how they're going to work together. So they fill this out, identifying the timeframes of when they're going to review each other's work or get together, whatever, however they're going to choose to come together to complete the case studies. And then I feel like I adopted, I don't know if you remember, from the 1980s, there's an author, Richard Scarry, and he had a book called <laughs> Pig Will and Pig Won't. And it's a book on manners for children. It's about working together and being appreciative and not getting the rewards if you don't put in the work. I think that's one of the things that students dislike about group work is fearing that they're going to end up doing all the work and other people are going to get credit. However, in this course, our students know from the beginning that the grade they get as a group doesn't necessarily become their individual score. Students within each group are evaluated by their peers and that evaluation is the basis for the individual score that each one will get regarding their participation as group member. Right. So I think that that is motivating in terms of having everybody come in and contribute their own perspective, their experience and knowledge towards a successful group experience. Well, and I think you're also talking about kind of a way to encourage empathy within assignments. So when we're talking about the three domains of learning, we really focus on the cognitive domain a lot, don't we? Where we're trying to make sure that our students are are focusing on learning the material, but not a lot on the effective domain where we're focusing on the type of experience students are having in the course and with each other. And so you're kind of drawing out something related to empathy. Okay, so just for a moment Mm -hmm. to expand on UDL, Mm -hmm. for those who don't know, we are going to put a link into um, the show notes from Mm cast.org. And cast.org has a ton of resources on universal design for learning. They host the framework. There's a ton of research that you can really, you know, get nerdy on if you want to. But I think one of the reasons that people like group work in her class is because they get a chance to express themselves and express their own experiences and That's when group work is meaningful, when you are using the components of the collective group Mm -hmm. to create something Mm -hmm. based on each like strengths or experiences. And so I think that's why group work is actually meaningful in this Mm -hmm. class. Mm -hmm. Anyway, if you want to learn more about UDL, go to udlguidelines.cast.org or click on the link in the show notes. I think that brings us back to kind of human-centered design, too. And we kind of touched on that at the beginning. Basically, human-centered design is when we are focusing on the learner's needs or where we're focusing on the user's needs in order to kind of uh, design something around that. And you said something really cool. You said to me about your course, you said something like, be bold enough to be personal. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about what that means to you? Well, can I go back to those case studies? I think that's where the personal part begins and then the personal part really develops in the project. But with the case studies, because each case study is built on a different stage of the life cycle, I want students to recognize not only what they know, but what they don't know, and that not what they, what they don't know is where the empathy begins. To begin thinking about why is this person in the case study doing what they do? Because clearly, you know, they're violating all these guidelines or this or that guideline. And typically students watch to rush in. I think we all do want to rush in and say, I know, I know, I know the answer. This is what they should do. But I encourage those students to look at this and ask, why do we think this person might be doing what they're doing? What questions need to be asked? 
So it's really teaching students to ask the right questions, to listen, and to consider the needs of other people. Mm -hmm. Now, when we get to the project, the project is extremely personal. It's called the NPAA. It's a Nutrition and Physical Activity Assessment. And it's a five-part assignment that begins at the very beginning of class when students don't know what's going to hit them. And they're filling out an assessment of their own attitudes and behaviors related to nutrition and physical activity. The next week, they create a plan for what, what is their, their own vision for health and identify something that they might want to tweak or nudge or improve on in the next six weeks of this course. So we start working on them understanding their own behaviors and what their behavior is meeting for them, and then applying that skill of recognizing that everything we do is likely to be done in order to meet one of our needs. So that when you work with other people, it's the same thing that people do what they do for a good reason. Right. Even if it's not healthy or dysfunctional or disordered, it's for a good reason. We need to understand that first. Well, and I think some of the things that you've kind of touched on with your case studies and then indirectly even with the interactive textbook, you know, everything is centered on people. And then you're able to pull out that empathy in your students because like human-centered design, you're focusing on solving a problem and identifying key issues. And the users are part of that. And so I think that that's really kind of an interesting thing that you do. Do you think that students feel like they're positively impacted by this project because it's it's something that applies to them personally and it applies to them professionally? So you've developed this wonderful, authentic, learning experience for your students. Do you think that when they're looking at how to kind of accomplish this, that they're drawing on some of that past material in your course or they're drawing on life experience? I mean, when you designed this, what what were you expecting that they would do with it? So my hope is that as they go through the course, they learn more and more and they begin to realize, oh, I'm starting to understand why I do what I do even more. So if we look back at the course beginning with preconception, going through pregnancy, lactation, and childhood, as my students are looking at their own attitudes and behaviors, I'm asking the question, why do you think you do what you do? And students look back to say, you know, based on what I learned in that second module about the child feeding relationship, this is what happened in my life. This is where my parents were and how food was presented for us. Or these are the things that I was exposed to and that impacted me. And it impacts me still today. And students are looking at their own in terms of that human design, they come to this class with inspiration. They know what they want for themselves, and they know what they want in terms of helping other people. So this project allows them to imagine what their own healthy life would be like, given where they are now and what changes they'd like to see for themselves. I think that's kind of a unique aspect of your course where you're asking the students to put themselves in your course. You could have easily have taught a course where they memorized facts about nutrition without having them put yourselves into the the learning experience. And I think back to that interactive textbook, the questions that you ask, a lot of them are this individual's having an issue with X, Y, and Z, knowing X, Y, and Z, what would you recommend to them? You know, so you're giving them scenarios in which they're an active participant in using this information personally and professionally. Now, is that something that you've seen works really well with your students? Or can you tell me a little bit more about how you're perceiving students feel about that? Yes, I think that students are using those case studies the way I intended. They're giving them 
practice. I think authentic practice because the case studies, I didn't just dream up or copy somewhere. The case studies literally are things that come out of my clinical practice. I take scenarios and I write them into case studies so that my students have an idea about what they might be faced with in their own life. And my hope is that they develop this authentic learning experience that's first and foremost recognizing that they are going to be dealing with people. And that's how we want a medical experience to proceed. If we don't, on some human level, develop a relationship with our clients, we won't have an impact. And I think that my students are learning that, and they're learning more about how to sensitively and empathically deal with other people. I think that 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 makes sense, that when you're looking at your students and you're looking at, you know, your approach, empathy is a part of it. And I think that you have a lot of empathy for your students. I mean, I think going back to human-centered design, you actually, when you make changes in your course, for example, the interactive textbook, you created a survey to see how this impacts students and and what they appreciated or what what was tough for them. So can can you tell us a little bit about that survey? I have two of them. One's in the middle, smack dab in the middle of the course, where I feel like perhaps I still have an opportunity to make a change if it's not working for students. So I have a survey asking how these are working. Do you feel challenged? And is it enough or too much? I ask them about the interactive lessons that we have, how those are working for them. And then at the end of the course, I have another survey. And I immediately, when one session ends, I go back to the end of course survey to look and see what students said and what they think might be more helpful next time. So there's never an end. (laughs) I'm always looking back to see what what might have been better. And, you know, everything that students say we can't implement, but I certainly take a look at it to see whether or not it's something that could make sense for me and for future learners. So you have your interactive, your survey about the interactive textbook, you've got the mid-course survey, and you've got the course end survey. So students are empowered to feel like their feedback helps shape the learning experience right now and for future learners then. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I could I can still edit something that's down the road. Yeah, right. Tell us a little bit about uh, how your GSAs became an active part on this kind of human-centered design journey where you started to invite the student perspective into developing the textbook. Well, I've been fortunate to have pretty high enrollment, and that means that I get assigned a GSA or a graduate student assistant, and we get a pool of students who might be interested in our courses. So I typically choose students from two programs, the Doctoral Behavioral Health because those students are, of course, graduate students who have an interest and have already got skill and knowledge in behavior change. And then also our nutrition graduate students who have quite a bit of nutrition knowledge as it is. I ask those students to look at my course and see, does this make sense or does that make sense? And in fact, some of those students helped me write lesson guides. Every lecture that I have has an accompanying lecture guide that goes with it so that as the students go through a lesson, they can use this printed out lecture guide to take notes and to use to study for the quizzes over the content. And that's something, again, that came out in the evaluations is that about 93% of students are using those lesson guides to raise their scores and also as a takeaway from the course since the lectures are delivered to them on an app that they don't get to take with them, they do get to take all of the lesson guides with them. And it's a very detailed outline of the course content. 
Okay, so a couple of things from UDL that came up that mm-hmm. I feel like should maybe be brought up and those who are digging into UDL or Universal Design for Learning mm-hmm. can learn more about. One is representation. Christina does a great job offering options of comprehension and specifically grounding the knowledge in their own shared experiences. So mm-hmm. representation, very nice job. Hits yeah. it out of the park. The other one is engagement, which is not a surprise because Tamara Mitchell is awesome at really pulling the engagement pieces out to recruit interest on topics. That's what we heard about from Alicia Montalvo's episode, right? The 5e model was very intentionally included. I'm sure Tamara worked that in here without actually saying it, or maybe she did. It doesn't come up in conversation, but the engagement piece is huge. And that is something that Christina did really well in this course. Mm -hmm. She creates very authentic valuable moments that are relevant for deep reflection and content connection and an opportunity for them to share the context of the course in their own lives. Mm -hmm. Fabulous job. Very well done. I really like how you're referencing older episodes. It really kind of like gives a hypertextual element to the podcast. Go go listen to this old episode. Well, it's true. It's a good one. feels like Marvel Comics. Like Check out issue 138. True believers. (laughs) But go check those episodes out. Not joking. Not joking. Good episode. Great instructional designer. So the actual GSAs are asking questions. They're making suggestions. They're sharing the student perspective. And once you get that perspective, you update the guides pretty frequently then? I update the guides every time I make an update in the course content. The other thing I can update the guides for is if I see students are missing a question on the quizzes often, I can create a question and add that to the guides so that they know they need to review that content before the quiz comes up. But the GSAs have been fantastic for me in terms of just giving me constant feedback. The other thing that I feel really, I'm hoping that being my GSA has been good for them because the nutrition graduate students often tell me that they use this course as a review for their upcoming registration exam. So they have to review all of their content and be tested on it before they can become registered dietitians. Okay. So they're using this practically for themselves as well as seeing other students use it. That's right. They're using this as well for themselves. That's great. So it's been good for me because if they don't understand something, they're probably bolder than the students to say, hey, what do you mean by this? And you've been really good about taking feedback. <laughs> I've seen I've seen some of the feedback and you've applied it. <laughs> so yeah, that's probably yeah. why students feel like they're an active part of, of this learning experience is because you actually take their suggestions to heart and you make it happen. So that's a wonderful thing. Yeah, I suppose they're assuming that if you keep asking them how it's working for them, <laughs> that, that we actually want to know. <laughs> so you have another interesting element of this course and something that a lot of instructors would probably shy away from. And that's in terms of having your students set SMART goals to track and improve their own behavior. A lot of instructors might think, oh, it's fluff. Oh, it's not going to work. But based off of the course reviews, it looks like students are really appreciating this. Can you tell us a little bit about why you wanted them to set SMART goals and in internalize this content. So the SMART goals are one of the behavior change strategies related to what they envision as a healthier self. And learning the SMART goal skill, how to write a SMART goal, is a really important part for students in terms of helping other people. Many times my students will start off with, I want to do five different things in the next six weeks. And so the whole idea is, you know, to help them to learn to do these very realistically, 
say, well, you know what? That's probably too much. So in this course, they write SMART goals within an assignment, and then they get feedback on that assignment. They can go back and rewrite their SMART goals or edit them before they go on with the course. So this assignment, the project, starts on the first week of the semester, and it ends on the last week of the semester. So they keep going through this change process, revising their goals, just so that they can see the whole process about how they would help somebody else. I like that. And just for those of you who don't know what SMART goals are, SMART goals are specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, and time-bound, right? So they have all of those elements that kind of map it to help ensure that the goal will actually be met. Yeah. I did like, uh, you had a student named Toby, and I'm going to read what he said because I laughed really hard when I read this because he's so honest. He said, although I was not initially excited about the SMART goal accomplishment, I felt that it was a value added and absolutely contributed to my personal growth while in this course. I thought, what what a better, I mean, what a wonderful way to commend what you're doing. I mean, even students who weren't uh, sold on this ended up liking it. Uh-huh. Yeah, I really appreciate that. I think one of the things about this is with the SMART goals, you know, sometimes people will have their own rendition of what a SMART goal is, and the R is the one, S-M-A-R-T. It can be realistic, or I like Mm -hmm. relevant. And I think what Toby is saying is that it was relevant in my life, and that's what I really want our courses to be, is relevant to the students, can be relevant to their career, relevant to them personally, relevant to their future. And that's a really important part of this process for me. And I think that's a really important thing that we just keep saying over and over again. Human-centered design is about building a learning experience that is for the students, involves the students, and actually helps learning to be more interesting and meaningful in and out of the course Would you say that uh, when you first started teaching this course, you had this same vision, or do you think it's changed over time as you've gotten to know your students and their needs? I think my vision about what I wanted for the students is the same. I think how has changed dramatically because I had no idea how. I think all of the how, Tamara, came from you. Um, You know, your enthusiasm over nearly two years and the fact that not only I feel like you were, you know, you're the, you're the genius when it comes to course design, but also you seem to have as much love for the content <laughs> as I do, which was so inspiring for me to keep going, okay, yes, yes, more of this. And, or we could do that. I feel like as well as loving the content, you know, you truly love the students as well. And we're thinking about them in terms of how are we going to deliver these modules and that our students need to have the modules in a format or delivered how they access them most on their cell phone, on their iPad. So no matter where their busy lives take them, they can still take this course with them. Okay, one more thing around UDL. I swear this is the last time I'm going to mention it, probably. You better not mention it again. Yeah, I might, because it's a really (laughs) important way to build courses that Mm -hmm. are meaningful. But anyway, a baseline. And some people get accessibility confused with UDL, but accessibility is like what universal design for learning builds upon. It's Mm. not UDL, but it's Mm -hmm. the baseline. So I love that she talked about accessibility and making sure that the experience was robust, perceivable, understandable, and operable, because those are the WCAG standards that we are supposed to be meeting. Mm -hmm. Fabulous job. Very impressed that accessibility came up. WCAG? WCAG. W-C-A-G. What is that? 
Mary's looking it up. Web Content Accessibility Guidelines. Well, we do the 2.1. That's the most recent. 2.2 mm-hmm. is in draft mode still, I think. Mm. Anyway, it's always changing mm-hmm. because we're always learning more about how to make things more accessible in the digital format. But these multiple means of representation and access and multimodal design mm-hmm. only works when the web development is done well. Yeah. So yeah. formatting's a big deal. How you format your web pages matters. Mm -hmm. How you format your Word documents matters because then the student can use certain tools and turn them into audio formats. It's pretty amazing. Right, right. I think you just referred to that aspect of the of the uh, interactive textbook where they can access this on their phones, on their iPads, on their computers. That was a very intentional decision for us, wasn't it? Uh, we wanted the learning experience to transcend uh, just the course shell to actually become part of their lives. So I think that that's a, a wonderful thing that you're calling out. And I I would say I'm glad I keep following you around because I'm learning a thing or two. You're, you're the reason why. You're the reason why when I start to get sick, I take a lot of vitamin D, and it it really does work. <laughs> <laughs> but but you mentioned something about you know getting back to kind of that human centered design, and I know we're just kind of ringing this bell a lot. But you talked about having students feel like they are seen, known, and understood because it's essential for people to make change in their lives, and you have mm-hmm. a an interesting an interesting responsibility in this course because it's not only just a course about facts but it's a course about behavior change so you're working with all of these elements at the same time in in this course design can you tell us a little bit more about that well i think that that's critical because the students that i feel like i'm serving the majority of students i'm serving in this course are people who will become or are already healthcare professionals. And we know that healthcare professionals live under some of the most stressful conditions there. Their occupations require a lot of responsibility. They have to work long hours. And many of our students not only are going to school full-time, but they have jobs and they have families. So that human part as an instructor to recognize who our students are and what we're asking them to do to understand the pressure that they have to succeed. You know, many of them are in what some people call the achievement-focused stage of their lives, and they're trying to do so very much at once. And it calls on us as professors and, and instructors to recognize that and to deliver the course in a way that's doable for our students. Right. And I I think that that's one of the reasons why you started looking at the uh, quality matters rubric and some basic best practices and standards for online courses. You worked for quite a while to kind of get your course to meet certain standards that would create the best possible learning experience for your students. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I feel like Scrapping the textbook and starting over using the Quality Matters rubric was probably the best way rather than to try to, you know, use the existing course and change it. I basically started over and I had gone through the Quality Matters training and was implementing it in the past in a different way or in chunks, I think, perhaps. (laughs) But starting over allowed me to be consistent. And furthermore, I think one of the most important things that we're considering now is whether our course and all of its content is accessible to everybody. Mm -hmm. And Quality Matters really stresses that. I wouldn't have gotten through (laughs) the Quality Matters process without, you know, changing a lot of things and doing a lot of work that's probably not initially visible to most of the people who take the course. 
I like what you just said because you're talking about what it means to actually make sure that all students in your course can have a good learning experience, not just the students that can automatically access things, but students with screen readers, students who have different needs. Considering your entire group of students instead of just a few is is a pretty powerful thing. And you're right. Quality Matters really does support that. But how long did it take you to make your materials accessible? I remember that being a bit Uh. of a struggle. Yeah. Well, every time I made a change in the course, I had to recheck it. (laughs) So, you know, and every time the course gets copied, you need to recheck to make sure everything is still accessible. So it's an ongoing process. But yeah, I mean, as you know, you and I worked for nearly two years to completely rewrite this course. (laughs) But the the course is, it seems like it has some really promising impacts. Quality Matters, QM. I've heard this a gajillion times, and I think I understand what it is, but Mary, please, for listeners out there who aren't familiar with Quality Matters, can you please serve them up a hot... (laughs) Hot plate of QM. Hot plate of QM. (laughs) (laughs) So Quality Matters began with a small group of colleagues out of the Maryland Online Consortium. Mm -hmm. They created the standards for what most of us now use, and it's not just us in higher ed. It's also K-12. It's also continued education and like a corporate professional platform. Mm -hmm. But they're the ones trying to figure out like what makes a good course. And Mm -hmm. so how can we replicate that? And so Quality Matters rubric is how we replicate that and how we kind of hold to a standard courses that are built in the online space. So ASU happens to host a lot of training for Mm -hmm. Arizona. I happen to be one of the facilitators for the applying the Quality Matters rubric Mm -hmm. and intro to QM courses online. Mm -hmm. IOC is another one. Mm -hmm. And that's actually one that Tamara leads along with Elizabeth Lee, another instructional designer out of our group. Mm -hmm. And it's called Improving Your Online Course. It uses the Quality Matters rubric, but you use it specifically with your own content. Whereas in the other ones, you're kind of getting an idea of what the QM rubric is and you're applying it to another party as if you're a reviewer. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're kind of different perspectives, but we offer a host of these online and I think potentially soon in the future in person after COVID, it, things got a little weird. We mm-hmm. realized it just worked really well online. Hmm. But anyhow, we do offer these online. You're welcome to go to the Eventbrite site for ASU online mm-hmm. and sign up there for anybody in Arizona. Excellent. So let's just kind of ask you. The the final question that seems to always be asked in this podcast is, what is the end of your course story? Well, I don't like ending, but I think probably something about the end, the end messages for this course is that one of the things we want to do, and this is an expression I think, Tamara, that you used, was flipping the lens from shame and blame. And that's something I want to, in the end for students to recognize is that as they go out into the world and approach other people to be super sensitive about what they say and how they say it and how they see other people, avoiding that shame and blame doesn't just apply to the social determinants of health, but it applies to almost everything we do in medicine. People often feel judged and labeled by the diagnoses that they're given, and I want students to be sensitive to those judgments by first being more compassionate with themselves, and second, in how they interact with others. In terms of how the course ends, I'm not sure there's an end. Um, I hope, I can't imagine not teaching this course, although the time might come at some point. 
Well, I think what's funny is that we both were talking the other day and we noticed something else that we could improve in the course and we got excited about it. So it's not over. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but but I would say, no. let's say uh, someone is listening to this podcast, they don't teach a health-related course. How can they apply maybe what you've done in your course to their courses? I think that one of the things would be to use the issue online template. That's where I started. So, you know, I started drafting the course content and then I started using that issue online template. I think it's really important for students to have consistency in the way a course looks so that they know where to find information. Again, it helps students navigate and access the information. And it's, we're all about that so that if it's consistent between their courses, they know where to find the information. So that was one thing that I feel like I would do in every single course moving forward is start with that template and make sure my course follows a similar outline to other courses that students are likely to be taking. And then I think the surveys have been extremely important for students to know that they're being heard and that you are doing your very best to incorporate their suggestions into the coursework. I can see that. I can see how using some basic standards to set a good experience for students out of concern for their learning experience, and then taking a minute and actually listening to what their learning experience is, and then making updates based off of that, using universal design for learning principles and uh, human-centered design principles can make a big impact. Ricardo, do you know what is in the ASU online template? Absolutely not. Really? No. You've never like seen Canvas from your side? Not really. They all look the same. I just figured you would have. We are so consumed with media stuff. I can see that. You guys do a lot of work. So no, I don't know. Okay, fair enough. Well, our template is pretty, like I said, similar because mm-hmm. it's a, a template. Weird. Mm-hmm. So they're usually seven and a half weeks long. Our modules are seven modules mm-hmm. to mimic the weekly structure. Oh, I see. Each module has an overview page where the student gets a brief summary or a video or both to talk about what's happening that week. They get the learning objectives for the content, for the assessments that they're going to have. They also, in the overview pages, sometimes get like a highlight of what's going to be due So there's an alignment piece to the overview page. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then the learning materials page is where all the lectures go and, you know, PowerPoints or links to other websites to explore. And then the assessments. So they all kind of look the same. Hmm, That's great. And what what do you think the reason for that is? Going back to accessibility, operability, Mm -hmm. perceivability. Mm -hmm. Students don't have that excessive cognitive load to think about where things are. They'll know where it is. It all works the same way. So once you figure it out, it's kind of good for every class. Excellent. So Christina, you've tried really hard to make sure that you're that you're getting feedback on your own work the same way you give students feedback. What are some of the things that you've done for that? I feel like that's something that not a, I learned from you as well as the CHS Teaching Academy that we use both summative and formative evaluations. So throughout the group work, um, they do self-evaluations, peer evaluations, and knowledge checks as formative evaluations, and then the summative evaluations or the quizzes. But in terms of that formative part, I used feedback from a variety of other instructors as well as my GSAs and, of course, the students. The students' feedback on all of those surveys and course evaluations were really formative in terms of this course content. And you get a lot of feedback when you went through the Quality Matters review process and you were able to earn the Quality Matters certification. So congratulations on that. That's a big achievement. Uh I think if I sat down and counted, probably 10 or 12 other professionals have gone through all of this course content on some level. 
Yeah, that's an intentional decision you made as a, as a faculty member. Yeah, that was an intentional <laughs> decision. You feel very vulnerable asking other people. Um, some people are, you know, are experts in the content as well. Other people are not. They're just looking to say, does this make sense? Or would I know what you're asking students right. to do? But, you know, so, some of the people who've gone through it have been from, from literacy just looking to see, looking at my assignments and the writing and, and does it make sense from a writing perspective in terms of reinforcing students' writing skills, which is, you know, yet another <laughs> piece of, of their education. Christina, thank you so much for being here and for having this conversation. Are there any resources you want to share out with the group? I think the resources, mostly for other instructors, would be to take a look at our College of Health Solutions Teaching Academy to utilize your instructional designer to help you enhance your course for students. And then for, for my students, I don't know of any particular resource for students, except that I think each student brings their own strengths and for those students to build on their own strengths and offer those strengths up when they work in groups. That's the, the big thing, that they themselves are a fantastic resource, especially in a, in a course like mine. I love that you look at students as a partner and a resource in your course. I think that's pretty rare. So everyone has that resource. Oh, thank you. <laughs> that's great. Oh my gosh, Mary. Yeah? This is like the second to last episode of the season. Oh, it really is. It really is. Oh, we have a really good closing episode, we too. We do. We do. And it's also a little bit focused around eating as well. It is. We're kind of thematically brilliant. Uh, Yeah. We went right <laughs> from UDL into food uh-huh. and exiting with food. Food yell. Food love. Food yell. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we got a big episode coming up for you, listeners. It's going to be real fun. We want to include you. It's going to be kind of like a communal meal kind of thing. So get ready when you listen to the next episode, grab mm. yourself a snack or a, a, a lunch and uh, enjoy it with us. It actually is going to be one of my favorite episodes. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. was a wonderful opportunity to sit down and talk about a course as a group because it's not just one person interviewing. It was you and me and London. Right. Anyhow, it's so good. Right. The professors right. are knowledgeable, kind, thoughtful, mm-hmm. just like all the other professors we've had this year actually Mm -hmm. it's been really a great season yeah yeah and that's one where we got together in the studio but i would say that even though when we don't get together in the studio something like this with uh, christina and tamra still ends up being a really engaging conversation and yeah you'd never know that they were in completely different states when we were doing this conversation right right listeners and respond back if you did notice that they were in completely different states or lie to us and tell us it was perfect whatever yeah just good things (laughs) (laughs) but thanks to christina and to tamra and in this case quantity matters so the more you tell us how great we are the more we'll be appreciative of it we also accept gifts no big deal (laughs) all right mary what can the listeners do for us as a gift subscribe tell your friends go back and listen to past episodes Mm -hmm. if you didn't catch the past episodes that we referenced we would love to have your thoughts please email us at course stories at asu.edu and follow us on our twitter page at course stories and on Instagram. Mm. Is it still going to be at ASU Course Stories or are we going to change it? No clue. Who knows? Well, we'll, <laughs> we'll be a moving target. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> we'll share that information out on our, wherever you're following us currently. And in the show notes on Teach Online. Mm-hmm. So scramble to get to follow us as quickly as possible. Hurry. It's a race. It is. Go. 
Course Stories is available wherever you listen to podcasts. You can reach us at coursestories at asu.edu. Course Stories is produced by the Instructional Design and New Media team at EdPlus at Arizona State University. If you're an instructor at ASU Online, tell us your course story and we may feature it in a future episode. Thanks for listening. <laughs>